This is the What Now Podcast. It's important to understand like what the gospel is for. And I don't think it's to give us an easy life. I mean, I think if we are ultimately trying to grow and progress and become more like our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, like Christ did not have an easy life, but he learned how to give people unconditional love and he knew how to teach things in a way that even like the simplest minds could understand. So he had so much wisdom and love and experience because he had so many of these trials. I think we need to move away from a culture of saying like we do FHE and we do all these things because we want an easier life, we want blessings. I think ultimately the blessing is that we become more like our Heavenly Father and we grow and become stronger and wiser and more loving. And I think those are really good blessings, but we don't really think about them because they don't necessarily make your life easier. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss sensitive topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. I invite you to follow us on Instagram at podcastwhatnow. Positive ratings and written reviews are also appreciated and help the podcast to grow. Join me as I speak with marriage and family therapist Andrea Lystrip about what a faith crisis looks like. Andrea shares strategies for how to support someone in a faith crisis and the common reasons members consider moving away from the church. She shares how to avoid going to a place of fear and instead moving towards a place of understanding and trust in the individual who's struggling. Andrea shares her own experience with her husband who went through a faith crisis and how they navigated through that difficult journey. This podcast offers helpful insights for those of you who are in a faith crisis or supporting someone who is. Today, I'll be speaking with Andrea Lystrip, a marriage and family therapist, and our topic today is what a faith crisis looks like and how to navigate through it. So thanks for being with us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you on here. And this is a really important topic. We're seeing a lot of this right now where people are entering a faith crisis. It's almost been like coined a term faith crisis. So what are some things to look for before a faith crisis emerges? What are you seeing as a therapist and in your own life? Yeah, so I think that's one of the hard things about a faith crisis is a lot of times you don't get a whole lot of forewarning that it's happening. I think it For a lot of people on the outside, it looks like it just came out out of nowhere. But really, people have been struggling for sometimes years before you ever really see the fruits of a faith crisis. But in general, what you can look for is a little bit of an iceberg effect where people will mention something to you that they're concerned about or say like, hey, did you hear this about church history? Or have you ever thought about this policy or that sort of thing? And they give you that tip of the iceberg because they're judging your reaction. And so if you validate their concerns and they see that you're a safe space, they'll often show you more of the iceberg. But if you respond with dismissiveness and you're like, oh, don't worry about it, then they take that as a cue that you're not a safe space. And so they retreat and you never hear anything about it again until one day they stop going to church or one day they post something on social media and you're like, what happened? I missed this. Mm hmm. And that's often a common misperception is people are like, wow, they left over that one little thing. But sometimes it's not that one little thing. It's like 30 little things that culminated to the leaving, but they were scared to 
they tested the waters, maybe like you're talking about, and sensed that it wasn't really a safe space. They maybe harbor and hold that in until they end up leaving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think some of the warning signs is they might ask to be released from their calling or they're a little bit less engaged in church. Maybe somebody who normally would make a lot of comments isn't making comments or their comments sound a little bit more frustrated lately. So I think there are things that if you're looking for it that you might notice, but for the most part, that's something that a lot of people keep a secret because they're afraid of the rejection that they hear so many horror stories about. Yeah. And that is real. That does exist. So I can see how people could be kind of nervous, not with everybody, but there are different populations where it's not as accepting when you start entering that faith crisis. And it looks differently. I mean, you have some people like, what do you do when, what advice do you have for family members whose loved ones have entered a faith crisis and are in the debating stage about leaving? And it's more apparent. You can tell they haven't quite left, but they're debating. There's probably a different strategy than the advice you've given for members whose loved ones have already decided to leave. Like they're mentally out. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people are in that debating stage for quite a while. I mean, people talk about it being in that stage for a year or more. And so you have a nice window of time where you're aware of it happening if you're close to them and they think that you're safe. The fact that they're telling you about this debate is a really good sign. It means that they trust you and they respect you and that they want you to be a support person. So if you find yourself in these debating conversations, count your blessings and realize that you're in a really sacred space with them and the way you tread water in that stage is really important. And so I, in trauma, my husband's a physician, so he talks a lot about healing. And I think healing has a lot of applications to faith crisis. But in a trauma, you have what it's called the golden hour. And the interventions that you do during that golden hour are extremely important. And so I look at this debating stage as that golden hour. And so I think one of the things that people are tempted to do is first question is, well, are you reading your scriptures? Are you listening to general authority talks? Are you praying hard enough? Are you praying on your knees? Are you praying for a long enough time? Or are you reading your scriptures? Are you reading with real intent? Like we just kind of pound them with the typical Sunday school answers and say, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And that can feel oppressive and it can make it so that you don't really have the space to sort things out and do the healing that you need to do. And it can also convey this message to them that they aren't enough. And nobody really wants to engage with someone where you feel like you aren't enough for them. So I think that's the first thing that a lot of people do that you should avoid doing is that never enough narrative of making sure that they're doing more and more and more of the Sunday school answers. And then usually what we default to next is explanations. And so oftentimes that might be like saying, like, well, let's say someone's concern is church history. You might send them a link to a fair Mormon website or an explanation, or if they're concerned about current policies and you're tempted to explain the faithful party line answer for all of that. And the problem with why that doesn't work is oftentimes these people have been in a faith crisis for months and months and months, even years. And so they've probably already read a lot of the apologetic resources and they were already grew up in the church. So these typical faithful responses are things they've already considered. So it's not like you're offering them anything new. And really what it just does is it orients them to argue with you. And in general, when people argue, they only dig themselves further into their position. And so like you don't want somebody to argue with you and then 
by doing that further reinforce the negativity they have. Like you want them to have room to be able to see the goodness in their perspective. And so then sometimes well, people will realize that like, okay, so I need you to see all of the wonderful things that the church has offered you. And so you might ask questions like, oh, like what would you miss if you left the church? Or what are your children going to do? Or aren't you going to miss this or that sort of thing? And for people in a faith crisis, that feels manipulative. It feels like you're not really taking their concerns seriously and you're reinforcing it for them. They aren't reinforcing it for themselves. And that's really important to give them the space to find their own reinforcement. And so that's three things that I think we often do that end up undermining our goals for that person. Yeah, those are some really good things you've given us here to think about because I think in our culture, and I know I've done this in the past too, is you start to try to like fix people instead of supporting them. And you start treating like a problem to be solved. Exactly. President Monson did a talk and they turned it into, they were the Mormon message videos at the time. I don't remember what they're called now, but that was the whole premise of it was don't treat people like a problem to be solved, treat them like a person to be loved. And so a lot of what we do that reinforces this problem is we look at doubt or faith crisis or trials of faith as a problem to be solved. And we look at it like, okay, like how can we get you to back to where the thought processes or the thought patterns or the faith system that you used to have, instead of saying like, wow, you're going through something really hard. Like, how can I support you through this? Like, what would you like me to understand? What would you like me to know about your experience? And that is what gives people the space to say, like, oh, like I do belong here. And I think that lack of belonging is really one of the final things that pushes people out. So there's a book called Planted written by Patrick Mason. And he talks about most people leave the church by either being turned off or squeezed out. And so turned off would be the types that discover something about church history, or maybe there could be like present issues. I know like LGBT issues are common. And so like if a parent finds out their child is gay, that might be something that turns them off. Or Versus the squeezed out mentality is someone or the people who they genuinely want to remain a part of the church, but they just feel like the culture becomes so rigid that they don't belong. There isn't room enough for them. And so I think we need to be really careful at adjusting our culture to be able to create more space so we're not squeezing people out like that. Yeah. And I just saw a statistic just the other day on Instagram, Papa Osler, he had a post on there and he said, 85% of people who are in a faith crisis, they're looking for reasons to stay. And a much smaller percentage are looking to leave. I mean, they want to see where they fit. They want to see where people identify with them and they want to be there. But they just get squeezed out, like you're saying. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't need all the check boxes. So maybe this isn't my place. Maybe these aren't my people. Yeah. And I think one of the things that confuses family members or friends or ministers or church leaders that are addressing these people in a faith crisis that want to stay is oftentimes the things that they say or their attitude indicates that they're very much done. And so I think it could come to a surprise if you're talking to someone and you're hearing how bitter and angry and frustrated or misunderstood or whatever feelings they're experiencing, you might think like, oh, well, this person must be part of that 15% that doesn't really want to stay. That isn't true. Like the anger and frustration, like those are all stages of grief. And I think that's something that people in a faith crisis are going through is they realize like 
my experience in the church isn't as simple as it was when I was in primary and I'm grieving that. And so part of this grieving process is anger. And so I think oftentimes we get freaked out by anger and we're like, oh no, like, are you becoming one of those like angry antis? And we don't know what to do with it. But I think if we just take a step back and relax and just realize that anger is part of that stages of grief and we heal from grief and that isn't something to be alarmed with, like you can still return to feeling positive about the church, even if you go through that angry stage, like that is just a part of what a faith crisis looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of that cycle that they go through. Going back to kind of, I liked what you were saying about kind of validating their experience. I think a lot of members get scared to do that because they feel like they have to jump in and totally defend the church and convince them and prescribe for them what they need to be doing and give them a checklist. You know, like primary answers, the Sunday school answers, instead of trying to see where they're coming from and the root of Mm -hmm. their concerns. Right. Well, I think sometimes we do that because we think of Book of Mormon stories like Abinadi who defended the faith against King Noah. And we think like, I want to be like that. Like, I want to be the kind of person that God can trust to be an advocate for his church. And that's a wonderful way to look at things. But I think it's important with everything in life, I think there are good values that sometimes are contradicting each other that you have to balance. And so I think in this case, you're balancing the wonderful desire to be a defender of the faith. And that's a beautiful thing. And But then on the flip side, we also have this value of ministering and finding the lost sheep. And so I think you have to realize that defending the faith does not readily equal ministering to the lost sheep. And so one of the ways that I look at which one to do is in the case of Abinadi, he was defending the faith against a king. So the king was making it so that they potentially would not be able to practice their faith or worship in the way that they want to. And so I think in that case, you're not really ministering to the one at that point. You're protecting everyone's ability to worship, whereas ministering to the one that's where you look at the example of Christ and he goes to people that are sinning and he communicates how much he loves and accepts them. And you don't really see Christ getting in arguments with people. Like he loves them and he cherishes them. I mean, he tells them not to sin, but it's done in a way that he protects them. And so I think when you're dealing with someone who's vulnerable in front of you, I would tend more towards ministering to the one and thinking about a lost sheep who's feeling afraid and lonely and scared. And how would you approach that person instead? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good perspective. I know you've witnessed your husband have a major faith crisis and considering leaving the church. And how did you navigate that? What did that look like? It was really hard. I think that I had dealt with faith crisis professionally for a couple of years before my husband had a faith crisis. So in some ways, I was prepared to deal with it. I had learned a lot about stages of faith and what faith development looks like. And so I wasn't really all that scared at first about what was happening. I was kind of like, oh, like you're just doing this natural faith development. And then as it got deeper and deeper, and I realized how deep it was, then sometimes I acted like a calm, collected professional, and sometimes I acted like a scared wife. And so it was a little bit of both. But I think my experience of talking to him through all of these things and seeing what helped and what didn't help really cemented a lot of my ideas of how we can get through faith crisis. I mean, I remember the first time he shared anything with me, 
he was away at a military training. So he was gone for six weeks. And so we were just talking on the phone and he just shared, he had ran into an old friend that had left the church and was talking to him about all these issues. And so my husband brought it up to me. And my first reaction was like, oh, like when I struggled with my faith, I found this talk by Elder Holland. It was called Lord, I Believe, and it was April 2013's general conference. And I sent that to him and I was like, this helped me so much. I bet it would help you. And I honestly expected that to just solve the problem. So I think that was my first reaction was the explanations or kind of do more. And then when that didn't work, I was like, what? Like, what do you mean it didn't work? That talk is great. I don't understand what you didn't get out of it. And then as it got deeper and deeper, I really just started to understand how much unconditional love and acceptance is really going to be the agent to allow people the space to heal. And there's an entire field of therapy. It's called strategic therapy, where it talks about when you feel stuck, like when you really want something to change and nothing is working. Oftentimes, you need to look at what you're trying to promote to produce change, and you realize that that thing that you're pushing ends up making the problem worse. And so I was doing that with my husband. I was like, read these talks, like pay more attention in church, like let's have better scripture study, let's make our home like more of a faithful place, and nothing was working. And so like that very thing that Sunday school answers that you think are the instinct of what should make it was making it worse. And then eventually I just kind of took a step back and I was like, what do you want to study for scripture study? And he had found, we had just like an old children's Bible that like was illustrated and just had really simplified stories of the Old Testament. And he was like, let's start studying this. In my mind, I was like, does that count as scripture study? But better than nothing. And like with how angry he's feeling, like I don't, what I was doing wasn't working. So let's try it. And my husband's faith crisis was really rooted in a lot of church history things. And so we were just reading these stories of this children's Bible, like very simplified stories. And eventually he just kind of closed it after scripture study. And he was like, he's like, huh, like Joseph Smith is actually really growing on me right now. I'm seeing more examples of like what prophets do. And it's a lot easier to have grace for the things that I perceive as his mistakes. And I was just kind of like, you're kidding me. Like this children's Bible that is like these oversimplified illustrated stories did way more for healing your spirit than like this epic Elder Holland talk that means the world to me. Like I was literally dumbfounded about it. And so it just kind of taught me that like really you just have to trust in that person's judgment of themselves and also trust in the spirit that the spirit already knows what to do. So my, my husband talks about this healing process when you're doing stitches, like if someone has an open wound or whatever, and they need to get stitches done. They say that what you need to do is give them stitches using a technique called approximate, don't strangulate. And what that means is that you put the edges of the wound close together and you stitch it, not too tight, because if you do it too tight, you applies too much pressure and that will increase the scarring and damage the tissue and it won't heal. So the principle is your body already knows how to heal. And I think that same thing is true of the spirit. And so I think ask people like, what is it about the church that you still enjoy? Or like, what kind of things help you feel the spirit that don't bother you? And then just let that be enough. Like let the spirit have the time it needs to do its healing without adding the undue pressure that's only going to do damage. Just like 
applying seducers too tight would do too much damage to your skin. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of things that you said there. And one of them is first you start operating from a place of fear, right? It's scary. You're counseling people who are having a faith crisis, but when it actually happens to the man you're married to and what that can do to your own family life and spiritual home, that's really scary. So I like that you pulled away from trying to control the situation and allowed him to be empowered to choose what he wanted. And it actually helped him circle back to have this belief system and profits. And there's just been so many examples of that through our faith journey, where as things got came to a head where you're like very scared and you're wondering what the future looks like. And when I have made the decision, just like you said, pull back, let go of control and trust in him and his journey, that it went so much better. Like I can think of another time where I was, this was probably one of the most dramatic moments that we'd had where we had a discussion and I like realized how deep the bitterness went. And we both went to sleep that night. And I remember just tossing and turning and wrestling and just feeling like life as I knew it was about to change. And there's an expression in the faith crisis community that I think was coined by Mother Teresa. Or no, it wasn't coined by Mother Teresa, but people talk about it with her. I forgot who it was from. But anyway, the reference of faith crisis is having a dark night of the soul. And anyway, that night after just tossing and turning, I woke up the next morning and I was like, that is what I think the dark night of the soul feels like, where I just felt like everything as I knew it was about to change. And so then that next day, I just decided to let go of control. And I was like, I don't know that I can like force this anymore. And so I sent him a podcast that was about like how to navigate a mixed faith marriage. So I basically was saying like, if you leave, I accept you, but I want to do it in the healthiest way possible. So I sent him that podcast and I said, will you please listen to this because I want to support you, but I think we need to do it in healthier ways. And then he listened to that podcast and that started turning and he was like, hmm, like, I actually don't know that I want to do a mixed faith marriage. And then a few days later, again, like we were still in that stage where it was really scary. And I just looked at him and I was like, and I remember just thinking like, I need to ask him this, but I really don't want to because this is letting go of the ultimate control where I just said like, do you want to take a break from church? And he like paused for a minute and then he was like, well, actually, no, not really because I do enjoy my calling and I like the hymns and I do feel the spirit in these ways. And this is where my community is and my friends are. And I really think, I mean, if you're there, I want to be there too. And so that was really a turning point because then he felt like he wasn't going to church because I was dragging him there. He was going to church because there was something in it that he valued. And so he didn't feel like I was manipulating him into it or pushing him into something that he didn't want. It was something that he chose. And I think there's so much healing and spiritual growth that happens when you are choosing to live your faith. Oh, 100%. And I love that you kind of gave him the opportunity to explore the thought of having the mixed interfaith marriage type of thing. Mm -hmm. If he chose to switch to a different religion or leave this religion, I mean, that's a scary question to ask and to send the podcast and not know what he's going to say. And maybe it made him, you having the courage to send that and kind of release the control and I'm willing to accept this made him realize well, maybe I don't want this. You know, if you've taken mm -hmm. a different approach where you're like shoving it down his throat and like, I don't know if I can stay in this relationship. If you leave this religion, hey, you're not keeping up your bargain. Like that kind of stuff might have pushed him further away. Right. I really think it would have. 
And it's scary. I mean, I remember every time I made those steps, I was like, oh, this might be the turning point. Like this might be the point where I have to change my life. And it's scary. And I mean, it worked out in my case. And I know that for other people, like they would be at a point where they're like, actually, yeah, I do want to leave. And and that's one of the things that I like really want to stress with how to talk to your family members who are considering leaving the church. We don't love people and give them unconditional love and acceptance because we think it'll end up making them come back to the church or have more positive feelings about the church because that still is conditional love. Like that's still motivated by what you want out of them. Like you really have to come to a place where you love them because they deserve to be loved. You accept them because they are still the same wonderful person that you have like all these qualities that you admire in them. And I think sometimes when they're rejecting something that is so fundamental to us, it can feel like they're a totally different person and you've lost sight of the person you married or the daughter or son that you raised or your friend or whatnot. It can feel like they're a different person. But I really think that your future closeness to them and in some ways, paradoxically, like their future relationship to the gospel will depend on how much you're able to show them unconditional love and acceptance. And again, not because you think it'll eventually turn them back to the church, which it might. And ironically, I think that makes them more likely to, but that isn't why you do it. Mm -hmm. And someone who's entering a faith crisis is probably a little more heightened to the hypocrisy too. And Absolutely. The, right? Like the unconditional love and all that. Like, hey, let's just see how much they really do care about me. Almost like a test. If I walk away, are they really going to embrace me? Are they really going to accept mm -hmm. me? That's one of the ways that I think we end up doing our faith some harm is oftentimes when people do walk away, then we do reject them. Or, I mean, we might not end our relationship with them, but we are visibly upset and angry. And I'm not saying that you can't have the space to be upset and angry. I mean, I certainly had my moments too. I think like you're entitled to everything that you're feeling, but I think there's room for both. There's room to be afraid and there's room to say, I'm going to love you through my fear and my fear is not going to change my commitment to you. And I think that does a lot for a marriage. Well, it brings a lot of introspection to the person who's struggling with a spouse who wants to leave. Like, okay, so what is fundamental here? What do I really care? What do I really love about this person? Why did I marry this person? And it's not just the faith. It's also characteristics and kindness and loyalty and so many other attributes. And I think when people leave the church, it can be tricky because sometimes I see people who throw that phrase, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They have mm -hmm. this precious thing that they love, like this baby, but they mm -hmm. have a, like one little issue or two little issues and that's the bathwater they're throwing out and then they throw their testimony, everything they've really loved away with it. They feel like there's no way to stay in it and disagree with these little things. They've got to throw it all away. Right. Well, and that also kind of circles me back a little bit to what you were saying about Richard Osler's Instagram post about how like 85% of the people that he surveyed in a faith crisis wanted to stay. And I want to circle back to the experience of somebody who's in a faith crisis and wanting to stay. I think it's important to understand a little bit more about kind of your upbringing and what you expected out of faith and to understand like why it might, that expression of like throwing the baby out with a bath water might be hard for you. And it, so when I think about 
just for conversation's sake, the experience between me versus my husband. When we were first married, I remember struggling with some doubts about the church. And I was young and immature at the time. And I was also like freshly married. And so I really didn't share any of my concerns with my husband because I was afraid that he was going to think he like picked a bad wife or something. And so I really kept a lot of things secret. And that's when I found Elder Holland's talk of Lord, I believe. And so that became like a really important piece in my faith journey, which is why I sent it to my husband to say like, hey, this helped me, which should probably help you. But anyway, I grew up in a family that was like very comfortable with asking questions. And if I said like, hey, mom, like this bothers me about this. And what do you think about it? And she would often say like, yeah, that bothers me too. That's something I've never really understood, but I just am not worried about it. And so I think I grew up with like a very accepting faith. My parents were very quick to see that there's going to be human imprints on the divine all over the place. And so as they saw mistakes, they were almost expecting it. And so for me, like, I don't think I really went through a faith crisis because I just did a faith journey like I was expected to in my family where you start to think things through for yourself and wonder like what's true and what's not. And you really sort through things. And so that was a very expected transition for me and my family. Whereas my husband, he was the son of a professional seminary teacher who had answers to everything. So if you said like, hey, like, what do you think about this? He would like pull out some like some rare historian's thesis on it and explain things in a really specific way. And so for my husband, like he never really had the chance to wrestle with questions because he was always given an answer. And it was very much repeated in his home. Like this is either the greatest thing ever created or like the most perfect organization ever created, or it is the work of Satan and it's all a deception. And so then as soon as my husband found a question that he couldn't answer, that all or nothing thinking was like, oh my goodness, like I have to throw the baby out with the bathwater because this isn't lining up with the view of the church that I was taught like had to be there. And so I think sometimes if you are really struggling with this faith crisis, I think it can be helpful to look back on your family and think about what you expected of the church and if that is the source of a lot of this cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of reasons people enter a faith crisis. I mean, some people are just spiritually worn out from social anxiety or depression. They can't feel. They don't feel the spirit. They don't feel these impressions. People get up in church and bear these amazing testimonies, and they're like, I don't even feel that. I've never experienced that. Maybe maybe I'm not that spiritual. I mean, what are some of these kind of triggers that can lead to being spiritually heightened like wait I don't wait that doesn't apply to me so maybe something's wrong yeah like you said mental illness is huge especially depression can make it so that you just are numb to feeling anything and that includes feeling the spirit I mean if you think about how you came to have a testimony it's usually this really warm burning in your bosom or feeling like elated about an experience at scout camp or girls camp or EFY or some sort of like formative youth experience or reading the Book of Mormon. And a lot of times our early church relationship is cemented in our teen years where mental health tends to be a little bit better, a little bit more protective and not for everybody. But anyway, so as you get older and your mental health declines, you have more stresses or more things that are on your mind and you're not in those kind of situations where you can really have these large outpourings of the spirit. You can start to be like, well, 
where did this go? And is, was that just confirmation bias or did I just create that feeling in myself or I'm not getting it anymore? And so I think it's important to recognize that anxiety and depression or really any mental illness can really interfere with that ability to be open to the spirit. And then I also think a lot of times with trauma, when people have a lot of trauma in their life, they start to build walls around their heart where it's a protection, where like, I don't particularly want to open myself up to feel things because that's how I get hurt. And so the same sort of thing. And I think in the scriptures, we talk about the important, or when people become like hard hearted and we look at that as often a result of sin. But I think we also have to look at it as a result of protection from a difficult world that sometimes we build up these walls around our heart. And I think like walls are hard, like that's another way to look at a hard heart. And so if you have a lot of trauma in your life, you're not going to open yourself up to be to risk feeling things. And I think sometimes a lot of people have this vague sense that if they really did at this point, like try to feel the spirit or try to really investigate the scriptures, I think there's this vague sense of like, what if I do and I don't get what I'm looking for? Is that evidence that when I was younger that I did make all of this up? I think this fear of like what is going to happen when I get there makes it so that people don't look. And it's a valid defense mechanism. I mean, if you're afraid that really looking into something is going to lead you to a conclusion that you don't want to happen, that it would make you like doubt the church or that it would kind of upend the foundation in which you built your family. Like, of course, you're not really going to look. It's easier to just tread water and just be like, everything's fine here. I'm doing my calling. I'm doing the things. Whereas really on the inside, they're struggling. And so I think that's another way that this fear really gets in our way is our gospel doctrine is beautiful and wonderful And Christ really is there with outstretched arms that he wants us to come unto him. But if we don't open ourselves up to it, we're not going to. And so I think it's like this double-edged sword of trust that our theology will support you and that that Christ will be there for you. But at the same time, when you're talking to somebody else who is in this fear stage, like believe them when they say, you know what, I'm just not ready. I don't know if I really get on my knees in prayer and I'm looking to feel the Savior's love. And if I don't get it, I'm not going to be okay. Trust that it's not their time. Like eventually their walls will soften or experiences might happen that make them open to it. But if they're not ready now, then they're not ready. And there's nothing you can do to make people get ready faster. Yeah, it's on their own timetable. And it can be really hard for some people too because they pray and they see other people get the help that they need, but they're not getting the help that they need. And they think, well, why isn't God helping me? Doesn't he love me? Like all these people get these miracles and people intervene and they help them and they're getting all this support and why aren't, why aren't I being supported? Yeah, I've had some clients and friends and lots of people just say, did I do something wrong? Like, does God not love me? Is there something wrong with me? And then they're thinking, if there's something wrong with me, then like, why even bother? Like, God just must be punishing me. And it's hard to want to engage with, you're not going to view him as a loving heavenly father if you feel like he doesn't like you and he's like punishing you. So that's going to be another step step removed. But then also what some people do is they think like, well, I'm feeling like there's something wrong with me because I'm not getting 
the same answers to prayers that other people are getting. But at the same time, intellectually, I know that isn't true. So then is everybody else just deluded here? Like, is everyone else accessing something that isn't really there? And so I think you get into this space where you're just thinking like, there's either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with the church. And the only way to reconcile that in their mind is that they either need to fix themselves, which isn't working, or they need to realize that the church isn't what it says it is. And that's really sad too, because then they're losing part of something that really was foundational and formative in their life. And so I think what we need to do as a church culture is make space for everyone, to make space for everyone's experiences and not look at obedience and blessings and prayers and spirituality as like this linear path to making your trials go away because that just really isn't true. I have seen some of the most righteous, spiritual, wonderful people try everything and they just aren't getting the same results that other people are. I mean, like infertility is an obvious example. Like if there's something like if you have had like a hysterectomy, like you are not going to be able to conceive a child no matter how much prayer and scripture study and stuff that you are. And so to hear other people talk about it, that they were praying and fasting and then they got pregnant and they knew that that meant God trusted them to have a child. Like think about how that would sound to someone who's struggling with infertility at the moment. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, because good works and consistency, they don't always lead to an easy life. Like you can do the FHE and the scripture study and the family prayer and And it doesn't always result in family members staying active in the church. And then parents get really discouraged, like, okay, I did the prescription, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So like, what now? Right. And that's where I just think it's important to understand like what the gospel is for. And I don't think it's to give us an easy life. I mean, I think if we are ultimately trying to grow and progress and become more like our heavenly father, And Jesus Christ, like Christ did not have an easy life, but he learned how to give people unconditional love and he knew how to teach things in a way that even like the simplest minds could understand. So he had so much wisdom and love and experience because he had so many of these trials. I think we need to move away from a culture of saying like we do FHE and we do all these things because we want an easier life. We want blessings. I think ultimately the blessing is that we become more like our Heavenly Father and we grow and become stronger and wiser and more loving. And I think those are really good blessings, but we don't really think about them because they don't necessarily make your life easier. Mm -hmm. Also, I've just experienced this with close friends of mine or family that have left the church and it gives me the opportunity to kind of dig deep and say, what is this really about? Do they need to be a certain way for me to like totally embrace them? No, I mean, it's really about my relationship with them as an individual. And Mm -hmm. there's so much more to that than it makes me sad because I can see the blessings and the things that could come into their life if they kind of live by some of these principles, their life would be less complicated. But it's kind of hard to watch, but it makes me realize, okay, well, I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be a checkboxer like, oh, they didn't do this and that. I just want to love them. So it gives an opportunity to the parent or the person interfacing with someone who's in that faith crisis to be a little more compassionate. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and it's interesting. So I have three brothers that have also stopped going to church. And so I've talked to my parents quite a bit about what their thoughts are in terms of like whether they'll come back or not. And one of the things that my mom has talked about is she hears a lot of people say like trust in the ceiling covenant, trust that people will make their way back eventually, that everything will work out. And sometimes that can be confusing of like, well, I see them clearly not choosing to be in the church right now. And if we believe that like our saving covenants are necessary to, to come into the celestial kingdom, like I don't understand how the sealing covenant has anything to do with their ability to walk back and come back to Christ. And I think it's important, like we have touched on this a lot about releasing that sense of fear. I think the stronger your testimony of the gospel and how all-encompassing the atonement is going to be and how much love the Savior and Heavenly Father has for us and the capacity for our own spirit to do the progression that it needs to do, to do the growth that it needs to do, to do the healing that it needs to do. The more that you trust that like Heavenly Father knew what he was doing when he created us and the more that we trust that his plan will take care of everyone, it really reduces a lot of that fear. And I think the gospel is beautiful and wonderful. And if we can just kind of focus on that, I think people do feel called to progress and grow and make themselves stronger and wiser and better. And for some people, like part of their faith journey, while it might be confusing to us, like they might learn important things on that journey so that when they've learned what they need to learn, maybe they will be better prepared for whatever is there in their future. Like we don't know what their faith journey looks like, but I trust that Heavenly Father has created a plan that even includes them. And I think that can reduce a lot of the fear and just say, like, I don't need to be the one to fix this. Like, I'm not a soul healer. Christ is. The Holy Ghost is. My job here is that Heavenly Father gave me people in my stewardship, in my family, or in my, like, ministering assignments. He gave them to me to love them and accept them and treat them the way the Savior would. And I don't need to be the one to fix people. Mm -hmm. I like how you say soul healer. I've never heard that described with Christ. And I like that. That's true. He can heal the inner soul of somebody. And that we have to, at some point, we have to release the control and realize he totally loves these kids even more than we do. And he's not going to let them go too far. Maybe they go too far and they learn lessons by going too far. And then when they come back, they're even stronger. You know, I've seen that a lot. Well, and it's like, I mean, why do you think the Savior gave us the parable of the prodigal son or the laborers in the vineyard? Like he's telling us that trust in his plan, like trust in his timing, that it's not too late. Like the Savior wants to welcome us all back with open arms whenever our time is ready. And that is beautifully said. And I'd like to end with that because I just think that's a great closing message. Is there anything you'd like to add to that before we close out? I guess I just think the more that you come to understand the Savior, the easier it is to come to understand how the Savior loves other people. And I think ultimately that's what we're striving for is loving others the way Christ does. Amen to that. The, the act of showing unconditional love it gives someone what they need to grow and change. I don't know anyone that grows and changes by being controlled, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, or manipulated mm -hmm. or anything like that. It's really people can sense when it's coming from a place of unconditional love and that you really just care about them as a person. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Andrea. This is a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We invite you to leave a positive rating and written review, which really helps our podcast to grow. All you have to do is subscribe to the What Now podcast and scroll down the episodes and you'll see where you can leave a positive rating and written review. We also invite you to create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. I invite you to follow us on Instagram at podcastwhatnow. That's at podcastwhatnow for daily inspirational messages. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.